service. Now, as you notice, we've got quite a few verses this morning. That's what happens when you get into the Old Testament narratives. There's a storyline, and trying to chop it up often causes you to miss the focus of the greater story of, of what's going on. So we're going to be in the next couple, uh, two months, looking at Daniel, and uh, we're going to be reading more of those verses. And I've also posted them in your announcements, so next week you know which verses that we're going to be, so you can actually start looking at them. Now, it was just over a week ago that the International Criminal Court put out an arrest for Putin for his war crimes. There's been prosecutors, and they put forth over a thousand pages of evidence that not only has there been indiscriminate bombings of civilian sites, targets, not only has there been an intentional campaign of terror, but there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of young boys and girls, Ukrainian children, taken from the occupied territories and forcibly relocated back in Russia. It's well documented, not only by us, and Russia doesn't deny it, but there are system, there's a systematic network of custody centers where these kids are funneled to and they're relocated back within the, the traditional bounds of Russia into a government foster care system, and they're there to be re-educated, to become patriotic, to become law-abiding Russian citizens. Many critics actually point at this and say, this, this is proof that his desire isn't simply to take territory which he would see as part of Russia in its historical borders, but that he wants to so demoralize, so humiliate the people of these occupied territories that he actually breaks their will. And by taking their kids and whisking them off, making them patriotic Russians, he prevents later uprest or unrest. Now imagine being one of those kids. You're taken away by this ruthless leader, you're re-educated, you're reprogrammed, everything that was part of your cultural heritage is stripped away. And you never know whether you're going to see your family or homeland again. It sounds pretty horrific, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly what we see this morning in Daniel chapter 1. As the people of God are taken into exile into Babylon. In the Old Testament, the exile actually is the, the watershed moment where the, the faith of Israel is shattered. They've stumbled, but God has taken them out of the promised land. He had, a, he had promised when he established his covenant that he would always be their God. If they were faithful, if they obeyed, then they would uh, know the blessings of God. But if, if they were unfaithful, they would also know his anger in the form of a series of curses. And here's the thing, if they persisted in their disobedience, if, if they continued in their rebellion, despite the warnings of the prophets that God promised he was going to send, God says in Leviticus 26 that he was going to remove them from the promised land and scatter them amongst the nations. He says, I, I tell you right up front, this is my covenant with you, but if you're disobedient, this is what's going to happen. This is the ultimate curse that will come upon you. And that's exactly what happened. The people of God 
repeatedly, and I mean repeatedly, broke their commitment with God. We were unfaithful to him in so many ways. And so God gave them over into the hands of the Babylonians. They were taken as slaves into a foreign land. There was no temple. There was no priests. No way to worship God even if they wanted. And what actually triggers the, at least the first of what are, what are, th- are three different waves of expulsion, of, of moving Israelites out of, of Jerusalem and the Promised Land, what we read about here in Daniel chapter 1 is that first way. What happens as the trigger point is King Hezekiah in Second uh, Kings chapter 2. You see, we have this superpower rising in, in, in the east, and as it's expanding, it's coming in contact with nations. As it comes in contact with Israel, Israel has a chance under King Hezekiah. God says, trust in me and I will save you. But King Hezekiah decides to make a political alliance with King Nebuchadnezzar. This new king, well, he's got such a, a big army at his doorstep, he, he wants to secure his borders. But because he was disobedient to God, 2 Kings 2, verses 18 says that even some of his own children will be taken away as captives to serve in a foreign city. Now, this is the opening of Daniel chapter 1. First two verses. Because they have sinned so grievously time and time and time again, the Lord, the word Lord here actually is a title, and it denotes his ownership of his people. The Lord himself hands over his own people, the Israelites, to the Babylonians, and they're taken as captives. The whole basis of Israel's understanding of their relationship with God was that Yahweh was the Lord of history. He had proven his power, had proven his authority when he took them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He was mightier than all of the gods of the Egyptians. He was mightier than even Pharaoh himself. But now, the exile. Did that mean God was weaker than the gods of the Babylonians? Is God really in control of all of history? The holy city of Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple is destroyed. The people of God are given away, and they're taken away into a land that, it reads here, Shinar. Now, you may not capture that word, but Shinar, according to Genesis 11, is the very place where the Tower of Babel was raised. I raised, I mean built up, not Lord. (laughs) This is the people who, from the very beginning of Scripture, have always rebelled against God and His purposes. And they're being taken to that. They're being taken to the Babylonians. So as chapter 1 opens, we see Daniel and his friends. They're now forced servants working in the the court of of King Nebuchadnezzar, at least preparing to be advisors. The treasure, and and Nebuchadnezzar took a lot of it. When he entered Jerusalem, they, they destroyed the temple and they raided all of the golden implements that were part of the worship process. And he took them back and they're now part of his personal hoard. The people of God are humiliated. They're demoralized. And they're forced to live in a foreign land 
a land that they know has always been hostile to God. In fact, a land that will become throughout all of Scripture, especially right up until the, the book of Revelation, as the antithesis of obedience to God. This is what it means to be in rebellion to God. Babylonians. Now, it's into this reality that the, the book of Daniel was written, recorded, preserved. It, it speaks to them and it speaks to us. So, as we begin this morning, oh, I just have to turn it on. Here, here's the point that we need to keep in mind for them and for us to reassure God's people that their sovereign Lord will guide them while they are in the world and to encourage them to be faithful. To, to look at everything that's going on, this would be everything for the whole of the book. But when we wrap it down, very specifically, it applies in a very unique way as we're coming to this morning. I'm just waiting to make sure everyone's got that written down. <laughs> to ensure God's people that their sovereign Lord will guide them while they're in the world and to encourage them to be faithful. As hard as it may have been for those who were forcibly moved and relocated, Babylon actually had a lot to offer <laughs> if they could just learn to adapt to the Babylonian way of life. Babylonia, or Babylon was, was not only the greatest superpower of the day, it was the seat of great learning, of great power, of math and science. It had endless opportunities. It was the place of great wealth, of opulence and pleasure. This was the place that we know one of the great ancient wonders of the world, the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon were. So there was architecture, there was mass, there was science. This was the place to be in the civilized world at the time. So imagine, it would be like coming from the backwaters of northern Ontario and coming into Toronto. They were coming from Israel into Babylon and all of the wonders that it had to offer. And here's the question that I'm sure was on people's mind. If God had been defeated by the Babylonians, why not worship the Babylonian god Marduk? God doesn't seem to be around. He doesn't seem to be in control. If we have to live in this land, why don't we just worship Marduk as well? Why not enjoy the good things that Babylon has to offer? In verses 3 through 7, we see the intense pressures that are brought upon Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are the pressures to, to as we're going to see, to make them conform and uh, to become Babylonian, to, to be useful to the king in his court. These were some of the best and brightest Jerusalem had to offer. They were good-looking. They were fair, it says. They were skilled in wisdom. They were skilled and in, in, in well-educated. But here's the thing. In order to make them useful to the king of Babylon, they had to go through this three-year re-education program. And that three-year education program was meant to strip them of their former lives. First, they were given Babylonian names. So um, imagine having a child and giving them an intentional God-honoring name and then having that name unilaterally changed uh, to a name that actually 
not only dishonored God, but honored the Babylonian God. So, for example, Daniel, which in Hebrew means God is my judge, becomes Belshazzar, which means may Baal, or Bel, protect his life. Likewise, Azariah, which means in Hebrew, the Lord is a helper, changes to Abednego, which means servant of the god Nebu. So they have these wonderful Hebrew God-honoring names, and they're stripped of their significance and given names that will work well within the Babylonian culture. That is to, to remove that, that, that ancestry, that heritage from them. On top of that, then, Daniel and his friends had to learn the language and the culture of the Babylonians. Now, that would have been literature, it could have been math, it could have been sciences, but it also would have been story, uh, included the stories, the folklore, and the pantheon of gods that the Babylonians worshipped. The spiritual worldview that they had. How do, how do people interact with God? And very specifically, it's believed that they were shown what the Babylonian expectation was and how do you divine a God? How do you ask them what do you want for their life? And if Baal was the main God, then one of the things that they would do was actually find cow urine and, and they would pray unto the God Baal and said, show us your will. And so it wasn't just innocuous or, or good-sounding things like maths and sciences. They were given over to understanding the whole spiritual worldview of the, of the Babylonians, and they needed to understand that. Finally, they were also given a generous allowance of food and wine from the king's own table. Now, as you can imagine, that not only made them dependent on the goodness of their master, but it would have given them an insatiable desire for all of the goodies that Babylon had to offer. And why, why eat only the basics when all of this uh, rich food is available to you? So on the surface, none of this sounds too bad. You get a new name, but you get a chance to study in, in the... the, the the most important educational center in the world. And you get to eat from the king's table. What more could you want? Here's the thing. Make no mistakes. This re-education was was, wasn't simply to get to know how the Babylonians did things. It wasn't simply get to know the Babylonian way of life. Its purpose was to make them subservient, to make them good citizens of Babylon. It was to change their worldview so that they would become useful. It was reprogramming them so that they weren't Hebrew anymore. When it comes to actually embracing this new world that was offered to him, Daniel shows great restraint and actually wisdom and faith. While serving the king, he doesn't seem to have much of a problem in taking on that name. You can imagine him in the court. If the king would call him by, by his uh, uh, Babylonian name, he would have responded. But in places like verse 17 of chapter 2, it seems very evident, that, at least amongst themselves, that they would have maintained their Hebrew name. Even the very fact that as we go through the narrative, their Hebrew names keep coming back and back again demonstrates that they still used it amongst themselves. And really, 
while they were thoroughly re-educated in everything Babylonian, these four men, young men, perhaps even teenagers, were able to preserve the teaching that they had received, uh, preserve a knowledge and a perspective of the world that honored God. And we're going to see that chapter after chapter. Living in a world that wasn't your own, living in a context and a culture that was the antithesis of glorifying God, and yet maintaining your worldview and your perspective as a believer in Yahweh. They were to maintain a a God-centered worldview, despite the Babylonian culture, despite the king wanting to assimilate them and become as Babylonian as they could. Everything else up to that point didn't seem to have much of a challenge, but the challenge comes when? When they're offered the food from the table of the king. And that's when we have this 10-day challenge of eating only vegetables. And let me just say at this moment, I, I went online yesterday to look for a couple pictures, and there is such a thing as a diet of Daniel. There's a fast, there's a longer one, and, and it misinterprets these principles and what's going on here. And so let me just say, uh, um, please don't go into that. <laughs> uh, but um, so er- everything was bent towards this, but when it came to the food, when it came to the wine, verse 8 says this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, the word resolved here in the original language, it's a very strong word. It means that he determined in himself, in his heart, that this is something that he had to do. This was his stand. He had to do this. Now, over the years, over the centuries, there's been a lot written about why the food, why the wine. And there's several things that come into play. First and foremost, we know that the food would not have been kosher. Under Jewish law, the animal had to be killed in a humane way, and then the the blood actually drained from the body before it could be eaten. And and that wasn't going to happen in Babylon, where there were no priests, and you had to to eat the food of, of your victor. On top of that, we also know that from history... All the food that went to the table of the king had actually already been offered over to the gods of the Babylonians. Whether it was a deer, whether it was a fish, whatever it was, there was an offering of worship to that god. And we also know that part of this re-education system was to make him appreciate, make them appreciate the kindness, the mercy, and the grace of this wonderful king, Nebuchadnezzar. Here we have all the decadent food, everything that they could always wanted. But here's the thing. It says this food was offered to them daily. The reality was, is instead of relying on God, they were being asked to rely on Nebuchadnezzar for their daily needs. And that was a lesson that Israel learned in the desert time and time again. Food and water that God provided. In all likelihood, it was is all of these things together. But spearheading it is the question, can you eat of, of non-kosher food, even though there wasn't a priest around to prepare it, even there wasn't blessings? And on top of that, the food being offered to other gods. So uh, these are the two central questions and concerns that, that would have defiled him. 
The important thing for us, though, is you should think about this. This is where Daniel drew the line. This, he said, I, I can't go any farther than that. He could adapt to a new name. He could learn all there was about the Babylonian life and even show respect and compliance to their way of life. But he couldn't disobey God's command about the things that would ruin his covenant relationship with God. It was one thing to serve a powerful leader, to show respect, to, to be an advisor, but it was another to defile himself before God. The system of sacrifice and of, of preparing all the food was not available, but in his heart, he still had to commit as much as he could. That's why Daniel takes this dangerous stand. And he, he asks, you know, he, he actually shows great constraint and great respect, but he says, for the next 10 days, how about just giving the four of us water and vegetables only? It, it was dangerous because refusing to eat of the king's table, not receiving graciously what the king has offered you is actually a sign of resisting his lordship, of re resisting his grace to you. So it could have cost him his life. E even the palace master here, that, that first person that Daniel approaches and said, let's do this, he's afraid for his life. He says, if you guys aren't uh, at least the same as you are as you come out of this, I'm worried that my life is going to be on, on the line here. Now, in the end, God does give favor to Daniel in the eyes of one of the guards. And this 10-day trial begins. At the end of the challenge, the four young men we read are fitter, better in shape than any of the people that would have eaten from the king's table. So from that moment on, for the next three years, God honored them. The Babylonians even honored them and said, well, yeah, you can continue in eating of what glorifies your God as long as it doesn't uh, reflect bad on us and it doesn't, as long as it doesn't ruin your relationship with us. What can we say at the end of all of this? Well, one thing that we can say is that through all of this reprogramming, a push that they would embrace the Babylonian worldview Daniel and his friends sought to maintain faithfulness to God within the Babylonian structure and not against it. Does that make sense? It's like looking at ourselves and saying, you know, we have to change everything about this because this is an ungodly society, as opposed to saying, well, within the place where God has put us to work to his glory and everything that has been given our way. So they accepted God's will that for whatever reason they didn't understand, they were now captives in this foreign land. They even worked towards the, the good of the, the city that they were sent to, which is a, a direct promise from Jer the, the, the prophet Jeremiah. But inwardly, they continued to resist the assimilation process. They were worshipers of Yahweh. They were, in fact, men of what we would say dual identities. They sought to be faithful to God in all of the things that were absolutely necessary in their spiritual life, while at the same time serving God in a hostile word, world and saying, well, that 
it's not that important. It doesn't reflect bad on God. It's not defiling unto myself. So I can do that. Now, everything that we've looked at so far has been about the faithfulness of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But if we stop here, we actually miss the main point of chapter 1. And that is God's sovereign leading through all of this. God gave his people over to the Babylonians, which is exactly what he had promised if they were going to continue in disobedience. He gave them over to their enemies, but he did not abandon them. In fact, his desire and his plan, as we start to see even in chapter 1, is that he is going to guide them. He's going to lead them through this difficult challenge that they have put themselves in because of sin. And everywhere we look in this chapter... Everywhere we're going to look in the book itself, we will see the indelible fingerprint of God, God's faithfulness throughout this whole story. In, in verse 9 here in chapter 1, it was God who gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the guard. It was God who honored this 10-day trial so that as the men came out and they were faithful to God, God actually blessed them with robust health, which was nothing less than a miracle. In verse 17, it was God who gave the four men great understanding, learning, and skill, and literature, and wisdom, so that they were head and shoulders above anyone else. The king could not find anybody in his kingdom who had the knowledge that they did, and these were still teenagers. And it was God who gave Daniel special wisdom to understand visions and dreams, which are going to be so important in the chapters to come. In every way measurable, these four were far superior in knowledge and understanding than anyone else in the kingdom. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar elevates them to a position of authority and power. They become trusted advisors, personal advisors, to the most powerful king of the world. God gave his people over to their enemy, a time when they would come to know in an intimate way that loving yet disciplinary hand of God. A time when God is going to lead them and, and bring them to a place of authority so that they could not only bless the others who were in exile, but they could be a blessing to the very nation of Babylon as well. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is indeed the Lord of history. The very fact that Babylon was this rising power was by his design because we read in Habakkuk 1.6 that he's the one who's raising them up. It's not simply that out of all of the, the human efforts that are going on, they, decide, they were the, the strongest and they won a specific battle. Habakkuk 1 says God raised up the Babylonians. As we look around, it might be easy to think that is God really in control? I mean, we, we look at the geopolitical events that are going on. Uh, I don't know if there's been a time of 70 to 80 years in the West that we've had that there has not been a war, that there hasn't been a war in centuries. There's always been something brewing. Look at the forces that are, are reshaping and sculpturing our, our society, that are redefining it. Is there a plan 
for the unfolding of history. Is God really in control or does he simply seem to allow things to to go for a while and step in only when he needs to adjust things on the fly? How can a merciful, holy God allow evil to run rampant? Is there purpose in all the chaos that seems to be around us? The answer in Daniel 1 is yes, God is in control. He is the Lord of all. He does have a plan. You may not necessarily see how the puzzle all comes together, but God is in control of all things, even the nations. Faith that trusts God perceives beyond the, the physical things that the eye can see and trusts in God. Faith that trusts in the sovereign providential of guidance of God, knowing that he is in control and moving all of these, great, uh, these things to his wonderful purposes is a faith that will not falter when challenges come, no matter what situation we may find ourselves in. And, and here's the thing. Unlike the book of Esther, where we have to, to look at God's work, it's veiled for us. We have to read between the lines and, and understand that it's God, but it's not very clear. The name of God doesn't even appear in the book of Esther. But here, Daniel is very clear at who's at work. It is God who moves the mightiest of nations, and it is God who positions his people. And this is where these two themes come together for us this morning. God wants to encourage us, just like he did them. He wants to encourage us as we, we look around us in this world, and, and even in our society these, this day. Our sovereign Lord is guiding, is leading us. He has never slept, and he is never going to relinquish his control. We may not understand, we may not perceive it, perceive it but he is guiding And it is his desire in in understanding that and knowing that truth and receiving it as part of of the promises of God that we learn to live in a way that honors God, that we are faithful ourselves in how we live in this world. Now, (coughs) during our time in the book of Daniel, one of the things I... I really want us to do is to see how we can find Christ in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to Old Testament narratives. How can we be Christ-centered? How do we come to the book of Daniel every time we open it up and see Christ? If we believe, as Scripture says, that, that everything points to Christ, and if Jesus himself says in John five thirty nine that all of the Scriptures testify of him, then... We should be able to see Christ even in Daniel. Over the centuries, just let me say as an aside, the the church has come to an understanding that there's seven basic ways, tried and true ways of being able to look and find Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, each week we'll touch on probably a different one as we go through. Now, I'm not going to list them now, but just imagine seven main roads coming in from all corners of the GTA, coming to the downtown. These are roads to help us understand where Christ is. Now, each week, myself or Pastor Alan or Dr. David, we're going to attempt to get as Christ-like as we can in our understanding. So this is where we're going this morning. 
I'm going to actually be taking what's called the way of analogy. It's one of the seven, the way of analogy. Hopefully at the end I'll have a little slide and uh, with all of these ways and a little definition so you can actually write it down and, and think back and have it for yourself. Now when we think of analogy, what we're saying is that there is a connection between the teaching and the goal of what we see in the text and the teaching of the goal of Jesus Christ. We're saying that there is an intentional link in God's plan of redemption between then and now. Now, we've just seen how this sovereign Lord has allowed Daniel to be snatched from the promised land. He gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar so that they were taken away into captivity in Babylon, a place that is synonymous with rebellion against God. While in Babylon, Daniel was obedient to God's law. He sought to be faithful. He did not want to defile himself. And it's because of his faithfulness, not because of his faithfulness, but in his faithfulness, that God guided and blessed Daniel to a place of authority. He raised him up and put him in a place of great importance. And that's going to become useful in God's hand in the chapters to come. In the same way, John 3.16 tells us what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. During Christ's time on earth, Jesus was faithful to God in all things. Faithful not only in the outward expressions of the law, fulfilling the law, but fulfilling the very intent, the spiritual reality of the law. In fact, he was so obedient when it becomes clear to everyone, including Christ, that he had to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. What does Jesus pray? May your will be done. May this cup not pass from my hand. As God guided Daniel to a position of authority, likewise, he guides Jesus to a greater position of authority. Philippians 2, 9 verse says what? Therefore, God has exalted uh, him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is the first analogy that we can draw, that there is a direct link between God working in Christ or with Christ and God working in Daniel, or with Daniel. Two pictures that are synonymous. But there's a second one here as well. And that pertains to us, God's people, and how we're to live by faith. Not all of the Israelites, as you can imagine, actually had the same challenges. They didn't have to worry about eating things that were defiled from the king's table because they were part of this court system that Nebuchadnezzar was, was trying to prepare and, and, and prepare, uh, wean them for. But Babylon never was and never will be a benign place for them. This was the place of rebellion. Evil and temptation lurked everywhere. So for thousands of people that never had the, the same situation as, as these four, that never had to worry about defiling themselves from eating of, of the king's food, their situation may have been different, but they still found themselves in the same place with evil and temptation always 
pursuing them. And here's the important principle for them this morning, that as they saw Daniel's life, it called them to be faithful and obey God in all things. When they heard of the story of Daniel's faithfulness, a young man who had all the perks he could ever want, all of the riches, all all of the rich food he could want, and yet he refused to defile himself, they were reminded of their own responsibility to follow God, to be obedient and not defile themselves, to live faithfully in whatever situation that they found themselves in, to make the right decisions that would be glorifying unto God in the way they lived. Like the Israelites during Daniel's time, we as Christians today live in a land that is not our own. This is the the overall theme of sojourning that we're going to come back to time and time and again. And part of the real reason why we're even looking at Daniel right now. What does it mean for us to live faithfully in a world that we know is antagonistic to God? It, It may look benign at times, but it is not. In fact, we have this challenge. Like the Israelites who were sent into exile, we ourselves have been in exile ever since the Garden of Eden. Because of sin, we have been kicked out of the Garden of an intimate relationship with God. We have been sent into exile. It's through the the redemption of of Jesus Christ, the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. It brings us into a new citizenship. It makes us citizens of heaven. And we we yearn for that new permanent home that is ours. Again, it may appear benign, this world around us, but it is not. That is our home. And while we are in this world, every one of us will find ourselves one day or another at the same crossroads as Daniel. It may be in our work. It may be in our schooling. It it may be in our family. We're going to come to that place where we're going to have to say, no, that is a defilement for me. I cannot do that. No matter what the temptation, no matter what the pressure, I will not go there because it does not honor God. Now, there are certain realities, situations that are ungodly for all of us. Sexual sin is an example in all of its forms. And the reality is is that each one of us every day is going to have different temptations, going to find ourselves in different situations. But the challenge is still the same. Are we going to live for the glory of God where he has placed us? We have to make those decisions all the time. And we don't have the problem of food that they had at that time because Mark 7, verse 19, Jesus says there is no clean and unclean food. Everything's okay. But we have the same decision of other things that may defile us. Now, again, it could be work, it could be school, it could be our education. I happen to know of a young man that uh, uh, we worked with uh, years ago. He had a good job with a company that, amongst other things, actually made armored personnel carriers. The problem for him was probably not so much, as Shauna said to me, that it's the armored personnel carrier, but the indiscriminate sale. And no matter who wanted it, basically, they'd sell to any country. And knowing that it was going to be used in situations of war. Now, it's not an offensive weapon, but it has that stink of war. 
And he came to the crushing conclusion that he could not continue in that work. And he had to leave. He left a good job not knowing what was going to happen. And God honored him. But each and every day, we're going to come against challenges. This world says, you need to conform to our understanding. You can't simply wing it. You can't look like us and not be like us. This is what you need to do. You need to cheat on your taxes. I heard of a lady in a story of a lady who is actually, her husband was in seminary in the States, and she was a quality control inspector for syringes. A group, of, a box of syringes came out, a whole shipment, and they were tainted, and she refused to approve them. She refused to say that they were okay. Under duress, not only her boss, but the, the president of the company said, no, you need to approve these. And she said, no, I can't do that. Well, she was fired. What are the things in your life that you say, I can't go any farther. This is not honoring to God. This... This ruins my relationship with God. It defiles me. There, again, are things that are wrong for all of us, but each and every one of us must live out according to our godly convictions. What defiles me in my relationship with God? And when we understand that, we need to make the decision that we cannot compromise. We need to change the thing. God's word clearly tells us that this world is not our home. As Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. We are to live in this world, but we are not to be of this world, right? We, we are not to embrace it that this is, I, I am a Canadian first and foremost. I, I am an American. I am a Chinese person first and foremost over being a Christian. I'm going to ask that we just read through. This is the, the priest, high priestly prayer of Jesus in, in John 17. Let's just read this through and think about what he's saying here. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated uh, them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your truth, or your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have also sent them into the world. Hours before his death, Jesus prays, Lord, guide them. They are not part of this world. They are yours. What makes you and I different as Christians is that we do not conform to this world, to the ideas, the values, the norms, the goals, the philosophies, the worldview. We are to be light, a light shining on a hill. Our good works are to bring glory and praise to God even amongst those who are not saved. The story of Daniel chapter 1 confirmed and encouraged those who, who were in exile that God is in control and that they needed to live faithfully. God had not been defeated by the Babylonians. God is not defeated today by all of the philosophies and isms that we would have. 
God is sovereign. He is in control. He is guiding and leading. We need to be faithful. Our Heavenly Father,